Section thirty of the Underground Railroad, Part One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad, Part One, by William Still. Section thirty. Barnaby Grigby, Elias John Boyer, and Mary Elizabeth, his wife. Frank Wainzer, Elias Robert Scott, Emily Foster. Elias Ann Wood. Two others who started with them were captured. All these persons journeyed together from Loden County, Virginia, on horseback and in a carriage for more than one hundred miles. Availing themselves of a holiday and their master's horses and carriage, they as deliberately started for Canada as though they had never been taught that it was their duty as servants to obey their masters. In this particular showing a most utter disregard of the intent of their kind-hearted and indulgent owners. They left home on Monday, Christmas Eve, 1855, under the leadership of Frank Wainzer, and arrived in Columbia the following Wednesday at one o'clock. As witfully as they had thus made their way along, they had not found it smooth sailing by any means. The biting frost and snow rendered their travel anything but agreeable nor did they escape the gnawings of hunger, traveling day and night, and whilst these articles were in the very act of running away with themselves and their kind master's best horses and carriage, when about one hundred miles from home, in the neighborhood of Cheat River, Maryland, they were attacked by six white men and a boy, who, doubtless supposing that their intentions were of a wicked and unlawful character, felt it to be their duty and kindness to their masters, if not to the travelers, to demand of them an account of themselves. In other words, the assailants positively commanded the fugitives to show what right they possessed to be found in a condition apparently so unwarranted. The spokesmen among the fugitives, affecting no ordinary amount of dignity, told their assailants plainly that no gentleman would interfere with persons riding along civilly, not allowing it to be supposed that they were slaves, of course. These gentlemen, however, were not willing to accept this account of the travelers, as their very decided steps indicated. Having the law on their side, they were for compelling the fugitives to surrender without further parley. At this juncture the fugitives, verily believing that the time had arrived for the practical use of their pistols and dirks, pulled them out of their concealment, the young woman as well as the young men, and declared they would not be taken. One of the white men raised his gun, pointed the muzzle directly towards one of the young women, with the threat that he would shoot, etc. "'Shoot! Shoot! Shoot!' she exclaimed, with a double-barreled pistol in one hand and a long dirk-knife in the other, utterly unterrified and fully ready for a death struggle. The male leader of the fugitives by this time had pulled back the hammers of his pistols and was about to fire." Their adversaries, seeing the weapons and the unflinching determination on the part of the runaways to stand their ground, spill blood, kill, or die, rather than be taken, very prudently sidled off to the other side of the road, leaving at least four of the victors to travel on their way. At this moment the four in the carriage lost sight of the two on horseback. Soon after the separation they heard firing, but what the result was they knew not. They were fearful, however, that their companions had been captured. The following paragraph, which was shortly afterwards taken from a southern paper, leaves no room to doubt as to the fate of the two. 
Six fugitive slaves from Virginia were arrested at the Maryland line near Hood's Mill on Christmas Day, but after a severe fight, four of them escaped and have not since been heard of. They came from Lodon and Fakir counties. Though the four who were successful saw no severe fight, it is not unreasonable to suppose that there was a fight, nevertheless, but not till after the number of the fugitives had been reduced to two instead of six. As chivalrous as slaveholders and slave-catchers were, they knew the value of their precious lives, and the fearful risk of attempting a capture when the numbers were equal. The party in the carriage, after the conflict, went on their way rejoicing. The young men, one cold night, when they were compelled to take rest in the woods and snow, in vain strove to keep the feet of their female companions from freezing by lying on them, but the frost was merciless and bit them severely as their feet very plainly showed. The following disjointed report was cut from the Frederick, Maryland, examiner soon after the occurrence took place. Six slaves, four men and two women, fugitives from Virginia, having with them two spring wagons and four horses, came from Hood's Mill on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, near the dividing line from Frederick and Carroll counties, on Christmas Day. After feeding their animals, one of them told a Mr. Dixon whence they came. Believing them to be fugitives, he spread the alarm, and some eight or ten persons gathered round to arrest them. But the negroes, drawing revolvers and bowie knives, kept their assailants at bay, until five of the party succeeded in escaping in one of the wagons, and as the last one jumped on a horse to flee, he was fired at, the load taking effect in the small of the back. The prisoner says he belongs to Charles W. Simpson, Esquire, of Fauquier County, Virginia, and ran away with the others on the preceding evening. This report from the examiner, while it is not wholly correct, evidently relates to the fugitives above described. Why the reporter made such glaring mistakes may be accounted for on the grounds that the bold stand made by the fugitives was so bewildering and alarming that the assailants were not in proper condition to make correct statements. Nevertheless, the examiner's report was preserved with other records and is here given for what it is worth. These victors were individually noted on the record thus. Barnaby was owned by William Rogers, a farmer, who was considered a moderate slaveholder, although of late addicted to intemperance. He was the owner of about one dozen head of slaves, and had besides a wife and two children. Barnaby's chances for making extra change for himself were never favorable. Sometimes of nights he would manage to earn a trifle. He was prompted to escape because he wanted to live by the sweat of his own brow, believing that all men ought to live so. This was the only reason he gave for fleeing. Mary Elizabeth had been owned by Townsend McVee, likewise a farmer, and in Mary's judgment he was severe, but, she added, his wife made him so. McVee owned about twenty-five slaves. He hardly allowed them to talk, would not allow them to raise chickens, and only allowed Mary three dresses a year. The rest she had to get as she could. Sometimes McVee would sell slaves. Last year he sold two. Mary said that she could not say anything good of her mistress. On the contrary, she declared that her mistress knew no mercy nor showed any favor. It was on account of this domineering spirit that Mary was induced to escape. Frank was owned by Luther Sullivan, the meanest man in Virginia, he said. He treated his people just as bad as he could in every respect. Sullivan, added Frank, would lounge the slaves and stint them to save food and get rich, and would sell and whip, etc. 
To Frank's knowledge, he had sold some twenty-five head. Quote, he sold my mother and her two children to Georgia some four years previous. End quote. But the motive which hurried Frank to make his flight was his laboring under the apprehension that his master had some pretty heavy creditors who might come on him at any time. Frank, therefore, wanted to be home in Canada when these gentry should make their visit. My poor mother has been often flogged by masters, said Frank. As to his mistress, he said she was tolerably good. Anne Wood was owned by McVee also, and was own sister to Elizabeth. Anne very fully sustained her sister Elizabeth's statements respecting the character of her master. The above-mentioned four were all young and likely. Barnaby was twenty-six years of age, mulatto, medium-sized, and intelligent. His wife was about twenty-four years of age, quite dark, good-looking, and of pleasant appearance. Frank was twenty-five years of age, mulatto, and very smart. Anne was twenty-two, good-looking, and smart. After their pressing wants had been met by the vigilance committee, and after partial recuperation from their hard travel, etc., they were forwarded to the vigilance committee in New York. In Syracuse, Frank, the leader, who was engaged to Emily, concluded that the knot might as well be tied on the Underground Railroad, although penniless, as to delay the matter a single day longer. Doubtless the bravery, struggles, and trials of Emily throughout the journey had, in his estimation, added not a little to her charms. Thus, after consulting with her on the matter, her approval was soon obtained, she being too prudent and wise to refuse the hand of one who had proved himself a true friend to freedom as well as so devoted to her. The twain were accordingly made one at the Underground Railroad Station in Syracuse by Superintendent Rev. J. W. Logwin. After this joyful event, they proceeded to Toronto, and were there gladly received by the Ladies' Society for Aiding Colored Refugees. The following letter from Miss Agnes Willis, the wife of the distinguished Reverend Dr. Willis, brought the gratifying intelligence that these brave young adventurers fell into the hands of distinguished characters and warm friends of freedom. Toronto, 28th of January, Monday evening, 1856. Mr. Still, dear sir, I have very great pleasure in making you aware that the following respectable persons have arrived here in safety without being annoyed in any way after you saw them. The woman, two of them, viz. Mrs. Grigsby and Mrs. Graham, have been rather ailing, but we hope they will very soon be well. They have been attended to by the ladies' society, and are most grateful for any attention they have received. The solitary person, Mrs. Graves, has also been attended to. Also her box will be looked after. She is pretty well, but rather dull. However, she will get friends and feel more at home by and by. Mrs. Wanzer is quite well, and also young William Henry Sanderson. They are all of them in pretty good spirits, and I have no doubt they will succeed in whatever business they take up. In the meantime, the men are chopping wood, and the ladies are getting plenty sewing. We are always glad to see our colored refugees safe here. I remain, dear sir, yours respectfully, Agnes Willis. Treasurer to the Ladies' Society to Aid Colored Refugees. For a time Frank enjoyed his newly won freedom and happy bride, with bright prospects all around. But the thought of having left sisters and other relatives in bondage was a source of sadness in the midst of his joy. He was not long, however, in making up his mind that he would deliver them or die in the attempt. 
deliberately forming his plans to go south, he resolved to take upon himself the entire responsibility for all the risks to be encountered. Not a word did he reveal to a living soul of what he was about to undertake. With twenty-two dollars in cash and three pistols in his pocket, he started in the lightning train from Toronto for Virginia. On reaching Columbia in this state, he deemed it not safe to go any farther by public conveyance. Consequently, he commenced his long journey on foot, and, as he neared the slave territory, he traveled by night altogether. For two weeks, night and day, he avoided trusting himself in any house, consequently was compelled to lodge in the woods. Nevertheless, during that space of time, he succeeded in delivering one of his sisters and her husband, and another friend in the bargain. You can scarcely imagine the committee's amazement on his return, as they looked upon him and listened to his noble deeds of daring and his triumph. A more brave and self-possessed man they had never seen. He knew what slavery was and the dangers surrounding him on his mission, but possessing true courage unlike most men, he pictured no alarming difficulties in a distance of nearly one thousand miles by the mail route, though the enemy's country, where he might have in truth said, quote, I could not pass without running the gauntlet of mobs and assassins, prisons and penitentiaries, bailiffs and constables, etc., end quote. If this hero had dwelt upon and magnified the obstacles in his way, he would most assuredly have kept off the enemy's country, and his sister and friends would have remained in chains. The following were the persons delivered by Frank Wainzer. They were his trophies, and this noble act of Frank should ever be held as a memorial and honor. The committee's brief record made on their arrival runs thus. August 18, 1856. Frank Wainzer, Robert Stewart, Elias, Gasberry Robinson, Vincent Smith, Elias John Jackson, Betsy Smith, wife of Vincent Smith, Elias Fanny Jackson. They all came from Alder, Loden County, Virginia. Robert is about thirty years of age, medium size, dark chestnut color, intelligent and resolute. He was held by the widow Hutchinson, who was also the owner of about one hundred others. Robert regarded her as a very hard mistress until the death of her husband, which took place the fall previous to his escape. That sad affliction, he thought, was the cause of a considerable change in her treatment of her slaves. But yet nothing was said about freedom on her part. This reticence Robert understood to mean that she was still unconverted on this great cardinal principle, at least. As he could see no prospect of freedom through her agency, when Frank approached him with a good report from Canada and his friends there, he could scarcely wait to listen to the glorious news. He was so willing and anxious to get out of slavery. His dear old mother, Sarah Davis, and four brothers and two sisters, William, Thomas, Frederick, and Samuel, Violet, and Ellen, were all owned by Mrs. Hutchinson. Dear as they were to him, he saw no way to take them with him, nor was he prepared to remain a day longer under the yoke, so he decided to accompany Frank, let the cost be what it might. Vincent is about twenty-three years of age, very likely-looking, dark color, and more than ordinarily intelligent for one having only the common chances of slaves. He was owned by the estate of Nathan Skinner, who was looked upon, by those who knew him, as a good slaveholder. In slave property, however, he was only interested to the number of twelve head. Skinner neither sold nor emancipated. A year and a half before Vincent escaped, his master was called to give an account of his stewardship, and there in the spirit land Vincent was willing to let him remain, without much more to add about him. Vincent left his mother, Judah Smith, and brothers and sisters, Edwin, 
Angeline, Sina Ann, Adeline Susan, George, John, and Louis, all belonging to the estate of Skinner. Vincent was fortunate enough to bring his wife along with him. She was about twenty-seven years of age, of a brown color, and smart, and was owned by the daughter of the widow Hutchinson. This mistress was said to be a clever woman. End of section 30